I think one of the things that I love working with uh, Pastor Adam is he's such a nice compliment to me in that uh, Pastor Adam is very thoughtful and deliberate about organizing things, and I'm spitballing it half the time. And uh, I asked him, I said, Adam, you're doing an acoustic set. I, I could bring out my little drum box, and I'll just jam with you right now. And, and half the team said, yeah. And Adam gave me that great, sweet smile that he gives that says, oh, I want to say yes, but I am out of your, out of your mind if you think you're going to do that. So <laughs> next time, maybe I'll get to have my drum box. Uh, <laughs> But there was something, that song we just sang, that I just felt in that moment, I thought, forget the sermon. Let's just stand and sing, thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you, God, for saving me. And I, as you can see, the emotions are coming in now because I just thought, I haven't done that this whole week. I have not spent time and just with abandon said, thank you, God, for saving me. Because I certainly didn't earn it. I certainly did nothing to deserve it. Uh, And yet, that is such a right response for a creature to respond to their creator. And so, man, maybe we could just forget the sermon and just stand and sing, thank you, God, for serving me, saving me. Yes, and serving me. But we won't. Not this time, at least. (laughs) We have a great text this morning. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. It's probably one of the most well-known passages of Scripture other than John 3.16. You know, if any of you does any teaching, there's only one thing worse than teaching a topic that no one knows anything about, and that's teaching a topic that everyone knows everything about, and such is the case with the parable of, the parable of the Good Samaritan that we have this morning. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian to even know of the expression, uh, the Good Samaritan, because that phrase has made it into our culture in a number of ways. Hospitals and hotels are named Good Samaritan Inn. Uh, the U.S. has 30, sta- 30 states in the U.S. have what's called Good Samaritan laws on their books, where if you are lending aid to somebody and they get injured in that process, you're not held liable. So the concept of the Good Samaritan is something that everyone's familiar with. Even the Jericho Road, where this parable takes place, has found its way into numerous songs and hymns over the years. As a matter of fact, to show how far-reaching the concept of the Good Samaritan is, I want to show you a beach resort in the islands or in the kingdom of Tonga, the Good Samaritan Inn. So there it is. They've even got like rocks to kind of make you think of Palestine at the Good Samaritan Inn in Tonga. So from Tonga to Tel Aviv, everyone knows about this parable of the Good Samaritan. So not just because of the familiarity does it make kind of preaching through the Good Samaritan, this parable, challenging. What also makes it challenging is the very imagery that's elicited in your mind when you hear the Good Samaritan is the exact opposite of the imagery that would have been elicited in the minds of the original hearers. Did you realize that? So, so they, the Jews would have used a lot of adjectives to describe a Samaritan, and none of them would have been the adjective good. So for them to hear Good Samaritan, they would say, Are you, do you know what a Samaritan is? They would have used words like uh, uh, jerk, heretic, uh, an abomination, uh, all kinds of things. They would have never said good. So that's the other reason actually understanding this text is a challenge, not only because we're very familiar with it and heard it in so many ways, but the very imagery of the Samaritan is the exact opposite of from the original hearers. 
As a result of those two reasons, kind of one of two things happens when you come across this passage and when you're, when you're preaching and working through it. Number one, you can fall off the cliff of trying to be too creative, right? So you make up things that may not be there and try and say things that the text's not really getting at, and, and that's doing a disservice. Or you fall off the cliff of just kind of being bored with it. You've all heard it, so here we go. Here's the Samaritan. Be like a Samaritan. And you're just dealing bored of the text. So... The question we really need to ask this morning is, is there something in this parable in Luke chapter 10 that, that we need to walk away with that's beyond kind of just good uh, ethics? Did Jesus intend for his hearers to walk away with more than a call to moral behavior? Now, obviously, we know the answer to that is, is yes, But sometimes it's so hard to get past the clear, obvious moral imperative in this parable, and it's such an important moral imperative that we sometimes lose what I think the real fuel, real engine of this parable is about. And so hopefully we'll be able to get to that this morning. There are more than enough opportunities in our lives to be good Samaritans, right? There's more than enough opportunity to do good moral things, But we want the things we do fueled with the gospel. And so we want to see how does the gospel fit and and work its way into this parable. And that's the challenge that we're going to have this morning. So as we study this parable, we're going to look at three, for lack of a better word, I'm calling them life lessons that come out of the four characters in this parable. And we'll look at them one by one. Before we dive in, I just want to lay again a little bit of background because that's really important, and then we'll jump into the parable itself. As we do, I would love to open us up in prayer and ask God to bless the teaching of his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that your word is endlessly rich. Father, we thank you that as in response to your word, we gather week in and week out to worship you. And that we could stand here and sing at the top of our voices a truth that if we sung more regularly would reorient the framework of our lives. Thank you, God, for saving me. Father, we want to be those kinds of people that do not forget your goodness in our lives. We want to be those kinds of people that exclaim it and proclaim it daily, if not just weekly, that you saved us. Lord, that's what we're learning about in this parable. And so we thank you that just the way, the way that Adam, Pastor Adam, has arranged our services has prepared us to hear the preaching of your word. We pray you'd bless it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's talk a little bit about this parable. The parable of the Good Samaritan finds, finds itself in the longest section of Luke's gospel. Uh, it goes from chapter 9, the end of chapter 9, starting at verse 51, all the way and up through middle of chapter 19, where really Jesus' emphasis is on the key issues of discipleship. A key verse in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, in other words, taken up onto the cross, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So from that point on, Luke's gospel is all about living in light of the claims and demands of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Immediately in our passage, what we see is this lawyer, uh, and, and a lawyer is not the same in antiquity as we think of them now. Lawyers in antiquity in the Old, Te- in the New, in Old and New Testaments were experts in the religious law. They were lawyers because the law they knew was the law of God. So when you hear lawyer here, don't think of like those attorneys that do DUI kinds of things or anything. This is a religious lawyer. He's an expert in the religious law. 
questions Jesus regarding a meaning of Scripture. And the question he asks is, really, at first the question he asks is, how can I inherit eternal life? And he must have been listening to Jesus in Matthew 22 because he answered Jesus correctly. And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, right on, that's the answer. Go and do that, and you'll be okay. And then the lawyer who, he asks a question. You ever have this experience? Someone's asking you a question. It sounds like a question, but it really feels like a test. Right? You've had that experience. That's what's going on here. The lawyer asks a question, but even verse 5, 25 tells us he doesn't ask it to really know. He knows what the answer should be, but he wants to test Jesus. So he says, well, who's my neighbor then? And he thinks he's got him. And Jesus is used to this kind of question. It's like I said, it happened to him all the time. Even Luke helps us out by interpreting the motive of this lawyer. Look at verse 29. But he, referring to the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. Interesting choice of words. You see, Luke knew what was going on. This lawyer knew the answer. The problem is the lawyer didn't like the answer. He wanted something else. This religious expert, the religious expert of the law of God, ironically enough, wasn't happy with the demands of the law on his life. He didn't really want to know the real answer because he, he kind of was looking for a loophole. In other words, he didn't want his life to conform to the faith. He really wanted faith to conform to his life. He recognized that the demands of God upon a disciple was far more radical than he want, was happy with. Just as sometimes when we realize, we read God's word, we start to recognize that God's demands upon his are more radical than we first anticipated. You realize, God, God you, you don't really just want Sunday mornings, do you? But by you calling me to worship every Sunday morning, you're trying to indicate that the first day of the week should be representative of all my time as yours. God, you just don't want me to, to give a little bit on Sunday mornings when I pass that plate around. You're trying to let me know that the thing I cling to most for life you want me to give all that to you. Those demands are way more radical than I realized. I thought if I was just a good moral person, did a couple religious things, I was good. I'm realizing that's not how this game is played. You want me all in, and I'm not very comfortable with that. Maybe there's some workaround here. Maybe there's a way that I can have my life and have my faith fit into that life too, rather than have my life conform to that faith. So, so who's my neighbor? I mean, clearly I can't be neighbors to everybody all the time. So you tell me, who's my neighbor? He's trying to justify himself. He doesn't like the radical demands that the law had on Israel, just like sometimes we don't like the radical demands that the gospel has on us. And sometimes it's easier to make our, our faith try and conform to the way we want to live our lives after all, but we still want to cling on to some of the things that make us feel like we're doing what we should. And Jesus always sees past that and blows past that and always reinforces that the gospel is more radical in its claims on our lives than we've ever anticipated. Most ultimately seen in his statement to the disciples, you want to follow me, fine, pick up your cross. Pick up the tool of your death and follow after me. And you see, Jesus got these kinds of questions all the time. Who's my neighbor? How many times must I forgive? 
Which is the greatest command? How do I make this religion doable in my life? And I want to look good doing it too. I want to be accepted. I want my faith doable for me, and I want to look good doing it. See, Jesus, he never stops there. He says, if that's what you're thinking, you don't understand what you've signed up for. Because living the way God calls you is actually impossible in yourself. That's why you're called to be dependent on grace. And because it's God's grace, he gets all the glory. So if you're looking for a faith that's doable, that will make you look good, don't look at Christ. Because Christ is offering an impossible faith that only he can work out through your life. And that's why only he gets the glory. You see, this man's trying to limit something that cannot be limited. And Jesus, because he loves him and people and us, He's not willing to satisfy for good moral behaviors, religious activities every now and again. He wants to get through at the heart of the matter. You see, in the case of this parable and their law, there may not have been a specific legal obligation to help, but there certainly was a moral obligation. And this man only wanted to satisfy the requirements of the law. No more, no less though, but no more. I want to find out who my neighbor is, but just as importantly, I want to find out who my neighbor isn't. So I can just do what I have to and be done with it. And Jesus was challenging him as he challenges us to do what we ought to do. And, you know, before we look at this religious leader and this lawyer too negatively, we can relate. Certainly a man named uh, Wilbur Reese could relate. He wrote a nice little poem called, I'd Like to Buy $3 Worth of God. This is what he writes. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not necessarily transformation. I want the warmth of a womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. And Jesus would have none of it. And so he knew this man was trying to limit the demands of the law, and he wanted to break through that. So the very first life lesson here, getting to the heart of the matter, no pun intended, is that mercy and compassion are first a disposition of the heart. Mercy and compassion first come from inside us. They're not defined by the things we do outside us. And Jesus says at the very end of the parable, go and do likewise, as he's talking about mercy and compassion. Now clearly, what Jesus isn't intending this religious leader or us to do is find someone who needs help, put them on a donkey and take them to an inn. And you all know that, obviously. So when we read this parable, we're looking for the modern equivalent. And so one of those modern equivalents might be kind of roadside assistance, right? That's probably the easiest modern equivalent, traveling on a road and someone's on the side needing help. Roadside assistance. So pull over, help them fix a tire, whatever it might be. Or maybe it's when you come to the off-ramp at the end of the freeway, actually making eye contact with the guy at the sign, Right? and not looking at everything else or how interesting that person's license plate is or reading their vanity plate and and pretending this guy doesn't exist. Maybe a parallel, something we compare, an application is we actually acknowledge this person. Maybe we actually give them a dollar or two. Maybe we actually say, hey, I don't actually have any money, but it's got to be hard. What's it like being out here? Maybe it's just saying, yeah, I see you, you're a human being, and I don't have a clue what's going on in your life, but I recognize you. 
But is Jesus really trying to say, I just want you to do nice things? The people of God, I just want them to do nice things? There's more to it than that. And Jesus said so. Look at verse 33 and then verse 37. Verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, the man beaten and laying in a ditch, and here it is, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Skip down to verse 37. On the lips of the lawyer, the lawyer says, when Jesus asked, who's the neighbor? He said, the one who showed mercy. See, the the emphasis of the parable is not necessarily on the external actions of this Samaritan. The thing that's the driving point is, the, the thing that makes a Samaritan impressive is because there's mercy and compassion flowing through the fabric of his being, and it showed himself in reaching out and giving care to this guy lying on the side of a ditch. Now keep in mind, the Samaritans were no saints, okay? When, when Jesus used the Samaritan as it pops up in the story, that would have elicited all kinds of thoughts, all kinds of memories perhaps. Like perhaps in the 8th or 6th or ninth year B.C., when Samaritans, according to Josephus the Roman historian in his book The Antiquities, had taken tons of human bones and threw them all through the temple courts at Passover, preventing the entire Jewish nation from celebrating the most cherished feast of the year because the entire temple got desecrated by the Samaritans. There was no love lost between the Samaritans and the Jews or the Jews and the Samaritans. They both despise each other equally. And if you're a note taker, write down 2 Kings chapter 17. Uh, we best we can understand this is where the Samaritan divide began when Israel in disobedience to God God brought Assyria destroyed the 10 northern nations took them off into slavery and then the king of Assyria brought back many citizens of other kingdoms he'd conquered and had them populate in northern Israel and they intermarried with the remaining Jews and thus came the Samaritans they were half-Jews, they were a constant reminder of spiritual compromise and idolatry because they had taken the the law of God and, and wed that with their own native religions and came out with this odd mix of things. So much so that centuries later in Ezra chapter 4, as Nehemiah and Ezra are rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, it records these people, and we believe they are the Samaritans, who say, let us take part in rebuilding the wall. And Nehemiah says, "Uh uh-uh, we have nothing to do with you and, and so you see the deep and lengthy divide that the Samaritans and Jews had towards one another. The closest modern comparison might be the animosity that we see even today in the Middle East between the, the Arab nations, particularly the Palestinians and the Israels. But even that, Israelis, even that does not capture the depth and the history of the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans at this point. So this particular Samaritan obviously was an exception to the rule because he was marked by compassion and mercy to this man in the ditch who, according to the parable, we assume is a Jew. And so Jesus chose the most unlikely hero of the story to emphasize this mercy and compassion that's so important. Now, 
Let's talk a little bit about this road itself, the Jericho Road that I talked about, that this parable takes place on. To this day, you can still see the Jericho Road, and if you're a tourist, you can walk the Jericho Road. It's a lot safer, by the way, nowadays. It is about 17 miles in length, and we have some slides up here to give you a sense of what it looks like. So you can see that the Jericho Road is a very rocky, craggy, there's caves there. It's a very dangerous and lonely road to walk on. Very easy for bandits or thieves to hide themselves and pounce on anyone who's traveling alone. Here's another photo we have of another different section of the road. They actually paved it. It's much wider. You see at the very top, that is a, a, we believe, I think that is a crusader fortress, about 4th century BC, that was built there to oversee the larger parts of the road to protect pilgrims who were making a pilgrimage. So here's a couple graphics that give you a sense of how this road went from. On the left, you see that in red, that's Jericho. On the right, in black, that's Jerusalem. But this next slide shows it even best. At Jericho on the bottom, it's 800 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem on the top, it's the leftmost road, goes up to 2,600 feet above sea level. So this is a long road. It's a dangerous road. And there's, it's, a, it's a tough road to climb. In English, the road's name is translated the path of blood. Not about you, but if I'm a traveling businessman, I'm not going to go to the avenue of bloodshed. That's, I'm looking for the yellow brick road or any place that I can go on that doesn't call bloodshed involved. But that's the road he takes in particular where this parable takes place. So let's go back to Luke chapter 10. Jesus says, go and do likewise. The point being, exercise mercy and compassion and kindness wasn't his attitude, not necessarily, it was his attitude, excuse me, not necessarily his actions. That is the focus of this parable. Although the actions always are flowing from the attitude. Right? Keep, keep your finger in Luke 10. Go with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. You see a very similar dynamic coming out here. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and and the people considered unsavory by the religious establishment. And they question him. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 9. Just look at verse 12. But when he heard it, all the religious leaders asking why Jesus spends time with these unsavory folks, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And here it is in verse 13. Go and learn what this means I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, we think sacrifice is a lot like mercy, right? That sacrifice and mercy are both kind of internal characteristics, but they're not. They're not the same thing. What Christ is really doing is comparing an internal disposition like mercy to an external action of cultic sacrifice. Let me explain that. When you read that text, you're not thinking of the cultic ritual of temple sacrifice where you bring up your sheep, your turtle doves, or whatever it is, kill them and offer their blood in sacrifice. What you are thinking, probably like I was thinking, was that it's talking about, oh, you know, I'm sacrificing my time to do this thing. It's such a sacrifice to go out of my way. We're thinking of more in those terms, an internal disposition, Kind of similar to like mercy, that I'm sacrificing this for the good of someone else. Jesus wasn't getting to that. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If you think what God has called you to is what Jesus is saying to these people in Matthew 9, 
is simple religious behaviors and things you can do and compartmentalize in your life, you are missing God's call on his people. I want mercy, not just external behaviors that you can do at your own convenience. I'd rather have mercy than sacrifice. Here's the thing with sacrifice in that culture and sometimes even in our culture. It's easy for people to see my sacrifice. For them, literally, you could see all the sheep I was hauling with me up to the temple. Look at all the turtle doves I'm sacrificing. Look at all the bulls that I'm bringing to give to God. What a sacrifice. Everyone sees how religious and conforming I am. But when I'm showing mercy, the only person who sees that is the one or two people who receive my mercy. Jesus is saying, I I want the actions of your life not to be concerned with how the the spectacle of the religious affair. I want them to be the motivation of God's heart that he gives to us. Furthermore, the whole point of the sacrifice was to appreciate mercy. So if you've got the sacrifice, but you don't got the mercy, you don't understand God's ways at all. And they had gotten their their systems to be about how we perform and forgotten that Jesus says, no, I want it to be a disposition of your heart, not just the things that you're doing. So then we we need to ask, why then verse 31 and 32? Because Jesus could have made this point, and he did in other passages, about mercy and compassion flowing from our heart. He could have made that point without bringing in, into the parable, the priest and the Levite, and certainly without putting them in such a bad light, right? Because remember, in the, in the Gospels, who was the good guy? Who's that? Come on, you guys know me. Call it out. Say, who's the good guy? The Pharisees, yes, right? Sometimes we read the Gospels, and we're always rooting for who we think are the good guys, which are the apostles and Jesus, but keep in mind, in their culture, they were the uneducated, you know, hey, you're a fisherman. What, who, what right do you have to speak to the religious establishment? Don't criticize the good Pharisees, because the Pharisees were guarding the law. Remember when we got sent into exile? We don't want that anymore, and thanks to these guys, God's loving us. So why did God bring in two of these characters and portray them in a way, why did Jesus bring in to the parable two characters and portray them in a way that could have offended the average listener? That was a risky move. I think because he wants to make the second point, and that's this. If we're not careful, religious involvement, moralism, or reason can hinder us from showing true gospel-fueled compassion. And notice Notice, I'm trying to cast this net wide. It's not just religious involvement. It can be just being a moral person. You don't have to be religious to be moral. Or maybe you don't consider yourself particularly religious or maybe moral. Maybe you're just reasonable. Any one of those can hinder us from the point of this parable. Sometimes in our desire to not be of the world, we mistakenly try to take ourselves out of the world, right? Right? We don't want to be of the world, so we remove ourselves out of the world. And, and I think it's safe to say that none of us here deliberately try to isolate ourselves from non-Christians. Just like if you're not a Christian here, I, I hope you're not deliberately trying to, well, you, obviously if you're here today, you're not isolating yourself deliberately from Christians. right? Maybe I'm naive, but I like to think that people of different persuasions are willing to dialogue and talk to each other. But the reality is, if we're not very deliberate about that, we will naturally isolate ourselves from those who are different from us, don't we? It's not because we want to be isolating people. It's because we, we naturally gravitate to people who are like me. 
And if I'm a Christian, I'm naturally going to gravitate to other Christians. And if I'm not careful, I don't really know too many people who aren't Christians anymore. And then the whole point of being salt and light is lost. So we need to be deliberate about the way we're living, deliberately trying to be in the world to be salt and light. You know, this is one of the reasons I love being a part of a local church, don't you? And I love being a part of a local church where everyone's not like me. Imagine how exhausting and neurotic it would be if we were all like me. Bad situation. I love that when you are committed to a local church, there are people there who may be nothing like you except for their commitment to Christ, and that's all you need. And I think that's one of the strongest testimonies of the world, right? Because I can go anywhere in our consumer culture and find people who are just like me, like the things I like, listen to the music I listen to, dress the way I dress, all that. But if I go to a church that way, how am I, how are we being representative of the eschatological people of God, big word that means the last times, where the book of Revelation teaches that all nations, all tribes, all people are there. And they're not all like us, each other. That's the beauty of God's plan. That's the beauty of this plan of radical diversity. Because we need people who are different to continually challenge us to get out of our own preferential worlds and say it's not about the way I live. It's not about being a consumer. It's about being what God is doing. And that's just in the local church. So I need to be that way in the world too. We need to be that way in the world too because if not, we stop being the salt and light. Now, in our passage, I will button this up to stick with me. In our passage, Jesus brings a priest into the story. That's somewhat not surprising. A lot of priests live in Jericho at this time. But to have him pass by would have added a sense of suspense. Ooh, a priest. Okay, this, Jesus is going Jesus to show this religious expert, here's how it's done. Oops, he just walked past. I don't know why Jesus did that. That's kind of offensive because... How, 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 why would he walk past? But that's okay. There's a Levite now. He's got a Levite in the story. Look what's going to happen. This Levite somehow is going to turn things around, and he just walked past too. You see, I wonder how many of those people might have been just confused. I know the religious leader wasn't. This lawyer was not confused. He knew what Jesus, the point Jesus was getting. You see, as an expert in the religious law, he knows the law very well, especially the first five books, the Pentateuch. And in Deuteronomy 19.15, so let me just read that to you briefly. Deuteronomy 19.15 says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses shall a charge be established. It's not a coincidence that Jesus used two paragon pictures of the religious establishment to come across a man in desperate need, both of them ignore him and walk away. As he's speaking to this religious leader, he's letting him know religious, pious Judaism failed to show mercy and compassion. Here were your two witnesses, and neither one of them did it. Here were your two people trying to limit the law of God in their lives, and none of them did what was intended for them to do. See, this religious expert, this lawyer, would have realized Jesus is saying religion fails. If that's all I'm looking for, it's going to fail the test that God has. 
Now, there could have been motives. And if you read commentaries on this, there could have been a lot of motives for these, for these two, for the priest and the Levite, and they would have been good motives. If I'm a Levite and I am going up to temple on my one annual year to serve in the temple, and I, don't, I see a man that's bloodied, I don't want his blood on me because then I'm unclean, and then I can't serve at the temple. Not only is that inconvenience for me, but that's an inconvenience for the temple. So I, I can't be soiled with this man's blood. I've got a good reason. If you're a priest, hey, if I get blood on me, I can't serve, and my livelihood's at stake here. So it wasn't that he just was heartless. He realized to stop here, my livelihood would be on the line. They had good reasons, I'm sure. Now, we're just speculating, because that's not in the text at all. This parable shows up nowhere else, and Jesus offers none of these explanations. We're just trying to give them benefit of the doubt here. The thing is, Jesus... In this parable, there's no motive given, just like there's just no mercy shown. There's nothing. And I think that was one of Jesus' point in bringing in the priest and the Levite. There was just nothing there. Now, there could have been, the parallel to that is, from a religious perspective, we could say, hey, I, we don't want to be unsoiled. You know, we, we have associations. We don't want to go in certain places and hang out with certain people. After all, we're Christians. We can't do that, right? We've said things like that. I, I don't I want to go in those places because what if somebody sees me? There's moral reasons they couldn't help. Oh, man, if, if I help this guy out of the ditch and patch him up and stuff, he's just going to walk on this road again, and he's going to get beat up again, so what's the point? Kind of our version of saying, well, if I give him money, he's just going to buy alcohol. If I give him this money, I know he's just going to buy smokes. Not much different, right? We can be, even have reasonable reasons. Hey, this guy, I bet you this is a bait and switch. If I help him, his friends are waiting to ambush me. The wise thing to do right now is just to ignore it and walk the other way. So we can have religious reasons. We can have moral reasons. We can just have good common sense reasons. But the point here is there's no reason or excuse for not having a life of mercy and compassion. None of these men even went to Jerusalem and said, hey, there's a guy in the road, send some people to help him out. They just went and did nothing. The point Jesus is making is there's no excuse to not have any inkling of mercy or compassion in your heart. I mean, we can come up with excuses, but I think the point here is there is none. That doesn't mean be unwise. Don't hear me say that. That doesn't just mean be foolish. But I think sometimes we can overly rationalize our decisions. And when it comes to mercy and compassion, God says, no, don't be rational. I'm not rational with you in my grace. (laughs) I'm not limiting my grace to you. I'm overly abundant with my grace. I'm lavish with my grace. Be like that. Now, there's one life, one last, excuse me, life lesson here. And I actually think this is the key to the application of this parable, not just to apply it in situations of a similar ilk, but I think the application that helps us understand all situations of our lives. If in the Samaritan we have a model of compassion to emulate, and in the priest and the Levite we have a warning to not allow any excuse to bind compassionate hands, I think the strongest life lesson comes to us from the man in the ditch himself. And it's this. That every one of us, when we read this parable, should see that we are in desperate need of mercy and grace and help from someone outside ourselves. And without that kind of mercy and compassion, we would be destined to our own doom. So here it is, life lesson number three. The gospel itself is the motivation for godly compassion. Now, there's an interpretation that, that I've read by Augustine, the church father in the fifth century, 
that I think is one of the most profound interpretations of this passage and simultaneously the most silly interpretation of this passage. Uh, Augustine believes that this parable is a tale of the fall of humanity. Jerusalem stands for the heavenly city, the man who was wounded for Adam who fell into sin, just as this man fell into the hands of the robbers. The priests and the Levites who pass by stand for the law and the prophets that cannot save. The Samaritans stood for Christ who did come and offer salvation. And here's where it starts to get really crazy. The inn stands for the church, where healing could occur, where the oil and wine are the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And even the innkeeper is symbolic for the Apostle Paul. I don't know how he got that, but one thing I love about Augustine was he made me realize that of all these things, yes, that's me. I'm the guy in the ditch. You see, what we tend to do when we read parables, it's like this one, we will try and compare and contrast ourselves with either the Samaritan or the priest and the Levite and say, okay, this is what I should do and this is what I shouldn't do. But if we just do that, we're not getting the gospel. What we're getting is just good moral behavior. And if that's what we're becoming, we're not becoming the people of God. We have to see the passage that reminds us of the gospel because that's the thing that fuels the real change that needs to take place. So if I just look at the Samaritan and the priest and the Levite, I'm going to be a moral person, but I won't be a gospel-fueled person. The person I need to look at in this parable is what Augustine brings our eyes to, is that I'm the man in the ditch. I'm the man that was beaten and left for dead. I'm the man that unless there is mercy and grace given to me and help from outside myself, I'm doomed. If I don't see myself as that man, I will just be moral, and I'll not be the person God wants me to be. But if I see myself as the man who desperately needs help all the time, I'm going to be crying out for that help, and I'm going to be crying out at the foot of the cross, and I'll be a gospel-centered person. And that's the person that God wants me to be. This is just a wonderful picture of what we learned in Ephesians chapter 2 when we studied the book of Ephesians. Augustine was right in pointing us and saying, do you see yourself as that man in the ditch? Do you see yourself who in the parable was an enemy to the person who brought him aid, just like you and I were enemies of God, according to Romans 5, 8, that while we were sinners, Christ's enemies, God sent Christ to die for us. Do I see myself, do you see yourself as that man who needs help that radically? You need to, because I think that's the main point of this parable. And we better believe, or you can believe that, had this man recovered, if the parable, you know, these days we had a sequel, sequel to the good, par- good Samaritan, if this man recovered, he would have tracked down that Samaritan, full of gratitude and thanksgiving, totally seeing the racial divide as stupidity, and, and if the Samaritan would have allowed him, he would have repaid him and, and expressed his gratitude in such tangible ways. And you better believe that if that man saw someone lying in a ditch who needed help, he would have been the first on his knees given that help. That's what John said, 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. And the way we are reminded of that great love is if with like laser focus, we look at what I'm calling the gospel of the good Samaritan, that I'm the man lying in the ditch. And I'm the man that somebody needed to help. I'm the man that needed a savior. I'm not the good Samaritan full of morals. Thankfully, not maybe these heartless religious people I'm not either one of those. I'm the guy in the ditch, bloody in my own blood, looking for someone to save me. And if that's our laser focus, the gospel imperative begins to fuel and flow out of my life just like yours. 
So when we ask, who is the good Samaritan, who's my neighbor, we could say, yeah, is, is it the man or woman who gives a couple bucks to the guy at the freeway? Is it the man or woman who visits a friend in the hospital? Those all can be it. But the real issue isn't our external actions. It's the affection of our heart. This is my heart overflowing with mercy and compassion that releases the binds, that binds compassionate hands, and is the gospel motivating me to these things? When that happens, we don't serve out of guilt. We serve out of the gospel. And I think that's what Jesus was saying to this religious leader. Go and do likewise. Let your life be conformed and shaped by the gospel.